G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at reedgoosens.com. And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Yeah, so millennial investing is a way to help people age roughly 20 to 35 or 40, you know, roughly that range, to invest their time and money better. So essentially, we'll cover anything in there. The main focus is stock investing, but we talk a lot about personal finance because I think that has a big component of stock investing. We talk about side hustles, and we also talk about entrepreneurship. So those are the main categories for the Millennial Investing Show. We don't talk about real estate on it. On the Real Estate Investing Podcast, that is all topics about real estate. For really anyone, it's targeted mostly towards newer investors who are done, have done zero to maybe four or five deals, somewhere in that range. That's usually our target audience. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this 
show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Robert Leonard. Robert is a full-time corporate finance manager, host of Millennial Investing and the Real Estate Investing Podcast by the Investor Podcast Network. He's an avid stock market investor and a real estate investor. He's most passionate about investing out of state and helping millennials start their investing career and investing their hard-earned cash. I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show today to share his incredible knowledge and insight with us. Enough out of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, Robert. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, Reid. I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. So for everyone who's listening, uh, we, you and I met, and I've just got to set the, the context of how we met, was actually a couple of, like, just before COVID hit, actually. And I think I got sick at the event we were at. I don't know if it was actually got COVID, but I, def- I definitely came back with a bit of a, bit of a cough and a cold uh, in Trenton, New Jersey at the PodMax event hosted by Eric uh, Cabrell and uh, PodMax Live. So uh, awesome, awesome time in and around there. What have you been up to since I saw you and met you in person? Well, there's been a ton going on, obviously, with COVID, COVID happening. So we've been you know, managing our portfolio, both on the real estate side, on the stock side. There's a lot going on in the markets there as well. And then you know, I work a full-time corporate job as well. So managing that piece of it as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to get into the story a little bit, but I always kick the show off with the, the, the top question, which is, Rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. You know, it's funny because you and I were both entrepreneurial. A lot of the people you have on the show are entrepreneurial, but I don't really have that dollar story as a kid. I was never really that entrepreneurial as a kid. I really wasn't in business or anything like that. And we'll get into my story, I think, a little bit in a few minutes, but I had a completely different path lined up for me and I didn't get into business investing or anything like that until it's funny, I say late. But you know, it's young for most people, but still in terms of the kids portion of it, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have a hustle like that back then. I was making snow cones and stuff like that, but I wasn't really selling them. I was just kind of going door to door and just like giving them away, really. <laughs> did your parents um, instill in you the, the, the value of a dollar when you're growing up? Like, did you have pocket money? Did you have to earn some sort of keep along the way? Yeah. So my dad did do a great job of that. From the age I turned 14, I've worked a real job. So I've worked at a, you know, a real W2 type job since I was 14 till now and I'm 25 today. So up until then, he would of course help me out with things. But once I turned 14 and I was making my own money, I pretty much paid for almost everything. He, you know, he covered the major expenses, like my living expenses and things like that. But I was, I had to buy my own car. I had to pay my own car insurance, gas, you know, clothes, <laughs> anything. Yeah. Anything like that. Uh, and to talk, so talk to me about that first job, the 14 year old job, because that's, uh, that's probably where the question is. It's that sort of 14 year old, 13, you might say kid, it's, you know, early, early prepubescent, you know, uh, getting some money earning from you. I, I remember my first job and, and walking around the shops at 13 and a half, because in Australia, it's, I think it's 13 and a half is legal to work. And uh, I literally just had my parents' phone number on uh, pieces of paper torn out of the newspaper, written on there and just handing them out. Can I get a job? Can I get a job? So, so what was your first paid job. Yeah. So a lot of people have those like lemonade stands as a kid. I didn't even do any of that really. But 
my first job as a kid was, or as a 14 year old was I worked at Dunkin' Donuts. So the mm. large uh, Dunkin' Coffee brand is where I worked when I was 14. I was an athlete all growing up. I played in high school my freshman year. And then towards the back half of my year, I started to work there and I realized what money was like. And I was like, oh, this is so much better than sports. And so then ever since then, I kind of put the high school sports to the side and I started to to work. Nice. And what, what did you what did you do? What, what sort of athlete were you at school? So in school, I did a lot of things. I ran track and baseball and I played basketball and I also played soccer. Got it. Got it. And now moving on into university, what did you go to school for? You're obviously, you're, you're a finance manager, is that right? At a W2 job? Yeah. So my W2 job, I'm a corporate finance manager. So undergrad, I got a bachelor's degree in finance and economics. Then I went on to finish my MBA in accounting and finance. And I also have an accounting designation very similar to the CPA. It's called the CMA and it's a certified management accountant. Awesome. Awesome. And so always wanting to be, you're obviously good at numbers. You're, you, you think like that, you know, how's it been, you know, you, you mentioned you're 25, so you're, you're still relatively young. Um, and, and you've got this, you know, I mentioned in the introduction, you have a couple of podcasts, you've got a side hustle. How's all that going? And, and I guess what's driving you to start all of those other extra stuff, uh, side hustles, uh, lack of a better word, uh, whilst you're working at W2? For me, it's, it's, I think I've had that entrepreneurial trait in me for my whole life, but it didn't really come out until I was probably 18-ish type age because so my whole career or my whole life growing up, I was racing motocross. So I was a motocross racer mm. up until I was 14 years old. My future, I was going to be a professional motocross racer. I had never planned on going to college. I'd never studied anything in business, investing, nothing like that. I was never trying to start a business, do any side hustles, anything like that. Granted, that was all before you know side hustles and things were popular like they are today. But nonetheless, it wasn't on my radar at all because I was the number two motocross racer in the world for my age. Wow. And I was like fast track to, to professional. And you know, it wasn't really a pipe dream for me. It was something that was actually going to be, you know, materialized. And so I only had one more season until I could turn professional. So hmm. I was pretty much ready to go. I had no plans of college. And then I ended up stopping racing kind of abruptly. And so I said, well, what am I going to do now? And so I found somehow I stumbled upon Warren Buffett and I was just absolutely amazed by him, got super passionate about everything he did. And that really like inspired me a lot, made me become entrepreneurial. My dad has been an entrepreneur his whole life. He owns his own business. And so that's really just kind of what built it out. And then it's kind of, I've done side hustle after side hustle after side hustle. And then it led me to, to what I'm doing today. Well, before we get into that, I, I, I want to just quickly rewind. You were, you were nearly number two in the world. At what age were you at that point? At that point, I was about 12 to 13 and okay. in that range. Yep, got it. And so why, why give up? What, what was, what was the, the thought process behind that? So actually, my, it was me and my dad. My dad and I would travel the country racing motocross. So we raced for about 10 years locally. I won mm -hmm. about 13 championships locally. And then we went to the national circuit, traveled the country doing that. And then we had someone pretty close to us pass away racing. Uh, he crashed and passed away. So that hit, and it was pretty close to my dad. My dad was good friends with their dad. And so it hit him really hard. And he said, if, if that ever happened to you, I'd feel very guilty mm. given that I'm the one that's providing this for you. So he basically said, you're not stepping on a bike again while it's my, you know, while I'm making those decisions for you. 
granted because I was under 18, I couldn't sign the the waiver when you'd get to the race myself. So I couldn't race anymore. I, 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 wow. I didn't step on a bike again. It was, it was abrupt right there. And yeah, I didn't ride again for 10 years. Did you, did you have some mourning around that and like the what, the what could have been? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For I, so my dad and I, it was just him and I, we had an amazing relationship. You know, we, like I said, we traveled the country all summer together. So we were super close. And then when that happened, we became very, very far apart. We, you know, mm. we didn't really have a good relationship for quite a few years. And then, I mean, even to this day, I can joke about it now. And I still talk to some of the guys that race. And it's actually interesting because some of the guys that I used to, you know, smoke back in the day they're the top pros in 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 motocross today and you know we'll be watching them on tv on saturdays my dad's like hey you know that could have been you right and i just <laughs> i'm like ah well look i think he obviously maturity has stuck um come around and i'm sure you've seen the other side of the coin in terms of where he's coming from and the safety of his, his son and you know looking out for him and, and being in that sort of really not understanding the decisions because I remember growing up as well. I was into horse riding, uh, show jumping competitively and re similar thing, travel on weekends around the country in Australia. And um, it's a very expensive and my parents were both teachers, but it got to a point where it was like, I just knew it was taking a financial drain on my dad. And, and it was, it was always a weird dynamic between my dad and I great, great relationship, but just knowing that that was such a major expense to keep it going. And I'm sure like in motocross, it, it, it ain't cheap, right. To, to travel the country and have a couple of bikes and entry fees and just getting to the thing and the whole mindset of it, like particularly at that young age at 12 to 14, 15, where you're going through pu puberty, you know, the, the, you fall off your bike or you fall off your horse or you, you don't do as well one race and that sort of eats away at you because that's the only thing you know because you're not, you just don't have that mature, maturity yet to be better, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I could imagine it would have been pretty hard to, to give it up and then all these years later say the, the what if of it all. So, yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. And it, it kind of, it helped my dad's business. It was extremely expensive, extremely expensive. Mm. And that was a component as to why we stopped. But what worked for us was my dad built my bikes. And so a lot of times he would build my bike. We'd go to the race. I would win. Somebody would want my bike. We'd sell my bike that weekend and I'd go home with no bike. And that happened <laughs> multiple times. So a lot of times it did help his business on yep. the entrepreneurial side. So it's kind of cool to be able to look back on that as well. But yeah, it, it definitely was an expensive and hard thing to learn when you didn't have the maturity that I have today. But in saying that, like I could imagine and knowing from, from personal experience, particularly, you know, dealing with live, like with livestock animals, like having to get up really early, be really disciplined at a young age, you know, that 12 to 13 year old period where you could sort of vary down a different track. So I, I could imagine being in motocross and at, at the level you're at, you would have had to be pretty disciplined, right? And that would have taught you so many more life skills that you to, to be disciplined today uh, in today's world. So did that have a major impact on, on, on how you are as an entrepreneur now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it still impacts me to this day. A lot of the things that I learned racing motocross, even though I was young, still impact me to this day. Right. And, you know, just one for an example, actually two things for an example. One is when I was young, I looked up to a motocross racer. He was my idol. I wanted to be just like him. And this was quite a while ago. So things were a little bit different, but he got caught uh, taking a substance that he was not allowed to take. Mm. And so, and it was a drug. And I told myself, I was young. I was very impressionable at that age. And I said, he just, and he was banned, banned from all motocross because of it. So I said, that is never, ever, ever, ever going to happen to me. So I am never going to do anything like that. And to this day, I've never done a single drug in my entire life. 
and I know that's a little deep of a, of a conversation mm, for here, but, yeah, yeah. but it's a point that stuck with me forever just because it was, it meant so much to me at that time. It's one of those things that has literally stuck with me to this day. And, you know, at this point, it's just, it's just kind of who I am. Well, it's, it's, it's probably the impressionableness, if that's even a word that you were at that age, that you look up to an idol like that and all of a sudden they're banned because they've done something stupid. Um, probably he probably regrets it, right? Uh, you know, we all make we all make mistakes, and you, but it's interesting how, as a young person, and I definitely could can empathise to that. That you, as a young person, you sort of internalise that, like never, and be really like, I'm never going to do this thing ever, ever again, and um, it, it creates the person who you are today. So, yeah, really, really interesting. Um, I want to kind of pivot. That's it's a super interesting story because it, I do relate to it somewhat in being that young, early teens, learning discipline, learning. Um, uh, not not as a ritual, but, but sort of having to go through the process of, of getting the bike ready, getting to the, the event, making sure you're warmed up, making sure you understand the course, um, all those things that that build to the excitement and and, and adrenaline pumping. Um, but now it seems like it's such polar opposite. You're 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 a finance manager, right? It's it's just like that transition to me seems really weird. So did you struggle coming out of the motocross industry back into the books, so to speak, and go to college and all that sort of stuff? No, I didn't really struggle. I don't really know why per se, but I think it was because I found Warren Buffett and I was super passionate about him. And at the time, this was before podcasts. This was really before YouTube was such a huge thing. And and I'm young, so it's even kind of weird to talk about it like that, but it, it was. I mean, these things weren't huge. So really the only way I could read about it was to read books. And so I just mm-hmm. picked up on it really quick and I started to read that way. And you know, talking about my dad a little more, he always kind of jokes with me and says, I don't know what happened to you because you're, I'm the only one in my family to ever go to college. Everybody is, is a blue collar worker for the most part. So I'm kind of like the, the odd, odd man out there. So for me, but it just, it really wasn't hard for me. And then even like through school, this might've helped was like when I was in elementary school and middle school, they had the gifted programs and the teachers must've seen something in me, uh, just based on what you could do for racing. They thought I had some sort of uh, gifted skill, if you will. And so I was in those types of courses where we were doing some higher advanced math and I'd always been decent at math. So once motocross ended, I said, well, I like math and I like Warren Buffett. I want to make a lot of money. So I might as well put the two together. And that's kind of where I found my passion. That's awesome. That's awesome. So now pivoting into where you are today, you, you still said 25, you're still very, very young. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the sort of side hustles that you've developed. You've, you've got um, the, the investing for millennials and then investing in real estate. What, why have you started those? What was, the, what was the call there that you wanted to go out and share your story and, and help educate other millennials in terms of investing their money better and, and, and wiser and you know, making sure they're not making stupid mistakes with, with the cold, hard cash that they're earning? Um, because you know, millennials are in that space that we're going to be the next biggest cohort of people to consume stuff right so buying houses and cars and sending kids to college after the boomers so what why did you go out down that path so i'd always done a bunch of side hustles throughout college nothing really took off i'd make a little bit of money here and there but nothing really stuck but the side hustles with the podcast and some of the real estate investing that i'm doing that's really what stuck and what i've been doing for quite a few years now but how i got into it was the first podcast that i ever listened to going back to you know studying warren buffett was about Warren Buffett. And today it's grown into the number one stock investing podcast in the whole world. And so I was listening to it one day and they said they were looking to leverage their brand and launch an additional show, but they wanted it to be about Silicon Valley. And I remember driving to my nine to five job saying, man, I really wish I could be a podcast host for these guys because the, I, you know, I looked up to them. I love their brand. I love their show. It was my favorite podcast. 
And I said, but I don't know anything about tech and I don't live in the Valley. So I guess I can't do this. Fast forward a few weeks, they put out the same ad, but it was about real estate investing. And so my ears peaked up and I said, well, I'm a real estate investor. I could do that. And so basically, long story short, I ended up reaching out to them, getting connected with them and it evolved. And they asked, well, do you want to do the same type of show we're doing right now about stock investing for millennials? You're a millennial, you're doing well and you're, and you're doing well. So let's, let's do one for millennials that way. I said, okay, let's do it. And then we did that. It did really well as a test. Then we decided to launch the real estate show. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I, I, I've been on your show, but I haven't actually listened to it. So what, what are sort of the topics and in, in, you mentioned stock investing. So I assume the millennial show is really more um, across all aspects of, of, of investing, not just real estate or not just stock, right? Yeah. So millennial investing is a way to help people age roughly 20 to 30 five or 40, you know, roughly that range to invest their time and money better. So essentially we'll cover anything in there. The main focus is stock investing, but we talk a lot about personal finance because I think that has a big component of stock investing. We talk about side hustles and we also talk about entrepreneurship. So those are the main categories for the millennial investing show. We don't talk about real estate on it. On the real estate investing podcast, that is all topics about real estate. For really anyone, it's targeted mostly towards newer investors who are done have done zero to maybe four or five deals somewhere in that range. That's usually our target audience. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the stock investing stuff because it's it's something we don't talk a lot about on this show because this is a real more of a real estate investing show. Um, but what are some of the tips and advice you give to the millennials about getting started in stock market investing, particularly now we're in COVID um, or looking back at at, at the, the crash in two thousand and eight. Um, what do you, what is the advice you're giving to those folks today? The biggest thing I'm trying to give to millennials for advice right now is make sure that you have your personal finances in order first, and then make sure you're investing for the long term. I have too many people that are coming to me wanting to invest money that they have no emergency fund, they have nothing set aside, and I always tell them you wouldn't build a house without having a strong foundation. It's the same thing with investing. You need to have that strong foundation, that strong personal finance foundation before you worry about investing. So get that taken care of first. And then if you do decide to invest or when you start to invest, make sure you're investing for the long term. I've had so many people reach out to me and say, should I invest in the cruise lines? Should I invest in the airlines? Because they're getting you know, really hammered right now. And I said, are you, do you want to own those companies for the next five to 10 years? Or are you looking to just trade them and make a sh- couple bucks here and there? And ev- almost everyone is looking to just trade them. And I said, if you're going to do that, take your money and go put it on, on your favorite color at the casino because your chance <laughs> is just as good. I go said, in, that, that's not, I don't do that kind of investing. I, that's not investing. That's speculating. That's trading. It's a totally different thing. A lot of people will argue that it's a good way to go. I don't personally necessarily believe that's a great strategy. So I just really want millennials to make sure you have a strong base first with your personal finances and then invest, truly invest for the long term. And when you talk about personal, uh, I know Mark talks about go out and get you the best, you know, corporate job, the highest paying corporate job you can get, you know, in terms of, and with, with the least amount of time and effort. So you can then have time to go out and save that money and go and invest or create a side hustle. Are you, are you saying the similar sort of vein is what Cuban's saying? That is one of my all time favorite quotes. I heard Mark Cuban say that back in my freshman year of college, and that has impacted my life probably more than any quote. And I still follow it to this day. I, I, I think that is very good advice. So yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Try and get the highest paying job you can that still allows you to work on your side hustles outside of it. 
And you talk about personal finance and so many people start to get, particularly you young folk, and I've you know, been a young folk, I'm a young folk, I'm 34, uh, uh, is when you start earning some decent money to not go in that, that tendency to blow it, you know, meaning on crap uh, and living within your means so you can have money to go and uh, invest. And, and that comes down to personal finance. So what sort of advice do you give on the personal financing side to make sure, okay, I've got a good corporate job or I've got a high paying, I'm a tradie and I'm, it's high paying and I've got my own little business. What are you telling folks in terms of what percentage of their income do they need to put away in order to go and start that nest egg in, in the stock market or in real estate in order to invest for the long term? I steal an idea a little bit from Ramit Sethi, but it basically says that you don't need to not do things you enjoy just to save money. So for me, I love dirt bikes. I love racing motocross. <laughs> I've actually yep. recently got back on a bike and it's expensive. So I've been right. spending quite a bit of money on my dirt bikes, but that's something that I'm passionate about. I enjoy and I am okay with spending my money on that. There's other places in my life where I make up for that. So I don't really care about going out to eat. I actually don't really like it. I'm not, hmm. I'm not a big foodie. I just kind of, I'm big into fitness as well. So I just kind of eat for function. I don't really eat for taste. So I don't, it doesn't really you know, impact me. I don't really like going out much. I don't go to bars or anything like that. So I save a ton of money that way. And I've been very diligent with my types of housing. I, you know, I house hack, things like that. So I keep my, my large expenses small, the typically large expenses small on the things that I don't really care about. And then I spend money on the things that I actually want. And on a net net mm -hmm. basis, I'm still able to save as much as I need to, to reach my goals. And to your point, well, I usually recommend at least three to six months of expenses. And, and I, when I explain this, I say non-credit cardable, it's not really a word, but non-credit cardable expenses <laughs> in a savings account to start. And the reason yep. I say that is because, and of course, we don't want to go into credit card debt or anything like that. But if you just take six months or 12 months of your, all of your expenses, you're going to see that big number. You're going to be super discouraged and you're going to be like, I can't do this. So I tell people to start with a little bit smaller number because if things get really bad, and you need to pay for something with your credit card, you could just to get you through. Right. You could yep. and then make that minimum payment on the credit card. But like things like your mortgage, you can't pay that with a credit card, your auto loan, things like that. But you could pay your utilities, things like that with your credit card. So don't worry about that. Start with the big ticket items, save three to six months of that. And then once you have the confidence to be able to do that, then you can start investing, maybe start saving some more money for those expenses that you could put on a credit card so you have a little additional savings. And then the last thing I'll add is that and this is not something I hear a lot of people talk about, which is why I want to bring it up, is I actually pay out my loans a few months so that I have that extra buffer. So anytime I get a loan, I make sure right from the beginning, it's paid out a few months. So I know if I'm getting a house, I want to not only have the down payment, but I want to also have, I want to be able to pay the mortgage ahead by at least a month or two. So now I have that buffer. Same thing with my car loan that's been paid out for three months, plus the three months or six months of savings I have. So now I really have six to nine months of, of runway before I'd have an issue. And we're seeing that with COVID right now mm -hmm. that that's helping, you know, massively. Yeah. I also think there's, there's that element of keeping up with the Joneses, right? Which we all suffer from. And particularly here in America, more so than probably any other world, any other country in the world, you know, America has this massive consumerism. So looking at this, at stuff that maybe you don't necessarily need, like you spoke about a car payment and, and having a car and you, you need a car to get from point A to point B, but do you need the brand new thing straight off the lot? It's probably what, you know, what I'm getting. Could you get a car payment on a, on a, a, a couple of years old or existing car that it, that it has been used, but it's, it's cheaper, more affordable. 
like living, you talk, you spoke about living within your means in terms of the house and the neighborhood. Um, I'm actually investing personally in a, in a personal house right now um, that's in a transitioning neighborhood uh, where the Olympics are going to come. I, I think I just know based on my international perspective, I, I believe in suburbs in and around um, Los, Los Angeles here where Olympics will be in eight to 10 years time that are going to be a fantastic investment. It's not my nicest neighborhood that I want to live in today, but it's, you know, it's you living within your means. I'm not going to go and try and live in uh, Manhattan beach and try and have a $3 million house right now because I just, it doesn't, I'm not living within my means. And so I think it's always try to try to push away that keeping up with the Joneses. Um, obviously to your point about being really into something or passionate is, is something you need that outlet. And maybe you need to cut back on some other things and, and you know, car payments and making sure you have the three to six month worth of, worth of expenses is, I think, a really, really good piece of advice. Um, what are you seeing in the stock market today that you've, you're, you're intrigued about that now we're here in COVID, post-COVID or, or now, are there any buying opportunities? Um, is there blood on the street today? You know, just because I just don't keep up enough with the stock market, I'm more to do with the real estate investing, which is lag the stock market changes. But what are you seeing right now as, as good investments um, for the long term? So it's a very loaded question, and I could probably talk <laughs> yeah. about that alone for 45 to 60 minutes. But what I'll say is you saw the market fall faster than it probably ever has. And so that piqued the interest of a lot of people. And everybody's like, oh my God, everything is on sale. I need to go buy. But when you take a step back, think objectively, use second level thinking, and you really and you look at a chart, it is down a lot, but it's not down that that much in totality. So like, for example, I was looking at a couple of companies and they fell a lot, but then you look back, they've only given up six months of, of gains. So if you look back, it's back at the price it was in November of 2019. It's like, that's really not down that much. And so mm. of course it's more attractive now than it was six months ago or even earlier, but, but it's still not as cheap as a lot of people were thinking. That said, mm -hmm. I have been buying, but I don't dump everything in at once. So I've been buying in and small chunks on the way down because nobody knows when the bottom is going to be. So I buy in tranches. I'll buy a few shares of a company I like here. I'll buy a few more shares there and then continue that on and on. A lot of people are trying to play with the companies that have been hit the hardest. Like, like I mentioned, uh, the cruise lines, airlines, things like that. Carnival cruise, Boeing. Travel. Travel, <laughs> exactly. Anything travel hotels, things like that, hospitality. I personally haven't really played much in that space. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to invest. I'm seeing companies that I really enjoy. I really like things like MasterCard, Visa. Those are some of my biggest holdings. Square, Markel, and also Adobe Systems. I really like these companies. And so I'm seeing them off 30, 40%. I'm adding to those slowly. And what people are missing is that some of those companies that you're looking at, the cruise lines, things like that, they look cheap based on historicals, but that's on historical data. You need to take into consideration their revenue and profit going into the future. It's not going to be the same as it has been over the last five years. And so one of the biggest components when you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis, which is one of many ways to value a stock, is the growth rate. Just tweaking that growth rate a little bit is going to have a huge impact on the value of that company. So you need to take that growth rate into consideration. It's not going to grow like it has over the last five years. So that's an, an important piece. And then the last thing I'll add is that you're seeing some people say that they're good investments because they're going to get bailed out. I don't know if they're going to get bailed out or anything like that. But for me, when I look at companies that might get 
a couple of billion dollars, $50 billion, whatever it may be to save their companies. I don't think that's the type of company I want to invest in. For me, I could invest in that type of company that they need a handout from the government in order to you know, maintain solvency and continue to operate as a business, to continue as a going concern. Or I could invest in a company like MasterCard, who's going out raising a ton of money, a ton of debt, at an extremely low rate. So it's not free. It's not free money from the government, but it's a very low rate given the interest rate environment that we're in. And now they're just stockpiling that cash away because the rate is so low, they're saving it for now, and then they're going to reinvest it in their business. So when we get out of this, they're going to be in such a better place because they have all of that war chest of cash to reinvest in their business. I'd rather invest in companies like that than try and time the market with companies like the hospitality and travel industries. Unless you knew, unless you know enough about them, right, to make an educated decision, I think that's what you're trying to get at, right? Absolutely. But I think I really like what you said. Well, the discounted cash flow rate analysis is really important, even in the multifamily space and the real estate space, like the rental growth, which is what you what these what moves the needle forward of revenue. Um, you know, historically, we've seen the last five six years in some cities, you know, five six seven percent year in year growth. If you're if you're still underwriting to that, and we've never underwritten to that, but you know even at two or 3% growth year on year, that might be still too aggressive right now. Um, so understanding, I think really important, looking back at historical revenue and the profit and seeing how much that has grown year on year in a stock or in any investment and seeing how you need to then discount it moving forward because it's not going to be this, you know, it's not going to be repeated right now. We're going to have a bit of a tailwind of, uh, sorry, tailwind, a bit of a lag of trying to get out of this you know, hole that we're, we're currently in. So I think that's, uh, super important. Um, and then the thinking objectively is really, really important, which is relates to the, the discounted cash flow. Back to your back to your companies you like. What is sort of the handful of things you look for in a company in the stock market that you like to then want to go and dabble a little bit in their in their shares? The biggest thing is being able to understand the company. That's how I decide to even analyze the company. If it's in a space that I don't understand, I have people, you know, given the podcast, I have people reach out to me with ideas all the time. A lot of what I get is biotech. And I, I tell them, thank you so much for your information. It looks really good. Honestly, based on what you've told me, it looks like a great investment, but I don't understand it. You know, everything you've just told me went right over my head. So I need to just say <laughs> no to that. And, you know, there's so many successful people that have said it, but you make your money on the things you say no to. So I need to just continue to focus on the things that I understand. And when I do that, I focus on, things that I can actually invest in and find good companies. So I look for trends of things that I like. So right now I think, you know, we're going away from cash. I think we're going to cashless systems. So that's why you'll see I'm heavily invested in companies like that. Like I said, MasterCard, Visa, and Square. Those are three big companies. I also invest a little bit in PayPal and some other holdings, but those are cashless type companies. I think that's a good trend to follow. So I started to invest in some of those companies. And then more specifically, right now, given where we're at, the current economic conditions, you need to look for companies that have a strong balance sheet. If you don't have a strong balance sheet, they're going to have a hard time over the next three to five years. They need to make sure that they have a fortress balance sheet to make it through times like this. Yeah, no, I think that's having cash on hand is super important. And, and it, it, no company, whether you're in real estate investing or you're in the stock market investing, you need to have strong cash on hand. And that's it's gonna you're gonna find a lot of people uh, as the tide goes out with um, swimming naked. So I, I think it's 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 really important to make sure that those you're looking for. I, I agree with you with the cash element of it. Being international, I also when I first moved to the United States, when my my boss that I was working for a civil engineering company, he handed me a physical check as a as a paycheck. I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? You know, like 
<laughs> I've come from a country where checks haven't been existed for years, and I just don't. Un- I still don't understand to this day why checks still exist in the United States, which is the biggest uh, GDP in the world. Um, but it's interesting that you, you mentioned that going away from the um, cash and, and, and physical checks and cash like that to, to a more of an automated system. I completely 100% agree with that. Um, and then strong balance sheet is just super important for anyone, not a, regardless if you're investing in the stock market or if you're investing in real estate, if you're investing with partnerships and stuff like that, make sure you understand what you have on hand and how long that's going to you know, last you for. And, and to back to your point on the personal finance, creating those three to four months worth of expenses. It's, it's, it's cash on hand before you start investing. So some underlying themes here, guys. Um, so Robert, moving forward now, what is your prediction on, and no one has a crystal ball, right? We're still locked in our homes. Um, how long do you think this, is it going to be a Nike swoosh? Is it going to be a V-shaped rebound? Like what, what are you seeing? Uh, what, are you, what are you feeling in the tea leaves um, as we come out of this recession? I honestly start to come out of our house. I should say. <laughs> yeah, I I honestly don't I don't know, and I think if anybody tells you they do know, then you should probably yeah, run the other way because yeah. nobody knows. You know, I could make a prediction. You know, the guy next to me could make a prediction. Some of the guys that I look up to, they're making predictions. I I have no idea. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick to the time proven strategies. I'm going to continue to put in money consistently through it all. I'm going to continue to invest in good companies at a good valuation with a strong balance sheet that have good future prospects that I believe in, that I think are fairly valued. And I'm going to continue to buy them and I'm going to continue to hold them forever. And whatever the market does, the market will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's changing that mind shift away from this. You know, we talked about keep up with the Joneses earlier, this whole instant gratification of, um, and it comes to real estate investing as well. Like this whole, like, I want to make a buck quickly. I want to make a buck quickly. I want to make a buck quickly. Oh, you know, and, and Warren Buffett has also been, you know, when people are running away from the fire, won't run into it. So people are thinking, oh God, there's going to be a great opportunity to buy. But overall, you have to know that you're investing, whether it's in real estate or in the stock market, you're investing for the long term and, and you'll do just fine. You know, there's those statistics over, you know, you invested a thousand bucks back in the 1960s. Today, it'll be worth something stupid, you know, like in the, the S&P 500. So, overall people just need to take a chill pill and understand that the word investing means for long term it's not if you can get a a quicker return a good roi quicker in you know let's call it less than five years fantastic but they're anomalies like you don't want to you don't always have to go for home runs you want to be going for base hits and i think that's real important and and those consistently good valuation fairly valued in long term are four really great pieces of advice for, for people moving forward um in saying that, quick question before we dive in the top five investing tips is um, unemployment rate. What do you, how much do you think that's going to impact our stock market? It's tough to say because the market is so liquid in, in the stock market. It's not like real estate. It's where, you know, it's a lot less liquid. Things get priced in very quickly. So mm. the entire unexpected unemployment rate could already be priced into the market. So Maybe those numbers come out and they're horrible, like everybody expects, but maybe they're not as horrible as people expected. So the market could go up. Or maybe they were exactly what people expected. You know, and when I say the market, it means just everyone that's collectively investing in the market, the general census. Maybe it's exactly what they expected. And then the market doesn't really move at all. It kind of just shrugs it off. We've seen that as well. Maybe they come think- in worse and it falls. You know, it, it's really right. hard to say. Do you think we're in a low interest rate environment for the foreseeable future? Yes. I don't see any way we could exit that 
that environment in the short term. I think we're, yeah, no, I think even in the long term is, yeah, but, but again, we're all speculating here. Um, one thing I wanted to, I, thought, I saw a, a very interesting stat the other day or, or a graph when you talk about history. And even I think we're back in 2017 or 2018, the S&P 500 was like, I don't know what it is today. I think it's like 22,000 or 24,000. It's something around that. But like back in 2016, 17, 18, it was, it was as low as like 15,000. Did I see that right statistic? I know you would know more about it than that, but it seems to be that you talk about how much it's, things have been discounted in the last month. You know, what, what is that compared to the last 10 years, right? Or last five years. And that's, that's keeping that in mind is super important where you've come from, right? Yeah, so that that twenty to twenty two thousand dollar amount that you're talking about, that's likely the Dow Jones. Uh, the S and P five hundred is yep. is closer to like the two thousand range. But but yeah, yep. I mean the point is still true regardless of which index you're looking at. And that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier is it fell a lot, and that made people think there was a ton of great deals out there, which there is some, but it's not everything is a great buy. Because right. if you zoom out to that, you know, if you go to Yahoo Finance, put in the S and P five hundred ticker or any ticker you want. It's going to automatically choose month to date or the last five days. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to look like a really steep drop. Click the five year button and it'll zoom you out and you'll realize it's really not that big of a drop compared to what we've seen over the last five years. So maybe it's really not, you know, that many opportunities as people think. Yeah, no, I think, yes. And, that, and again, my lack of knowledge of the stock market is, is clearly coming to the fore, but it was just an interesting look at historical data, regardless of where you're investing in look at historical data and take that bigger picture view and stop looking at the bloody 30-day trend because it's not going to help you it won't help and that that goes for real estate investing as well any type of investing you need to look at your historical data and rely on that historical data to see where you've come from and then maybe hopefully that's a bit more of a prediction of where you're headed to rather than just looking at that granular 30-day trend and oh the you know the world's on fire quickly buy <laughs> but you might be you know hundred percent up on, on your profits or, or your, or whatever it might be. And so you've only dropped 10, 10 or 15% and it's still a massive, you're still so much above where you were say five or six years ago uh, that you've got to take that in consideration when you are investing and making wise decisions. Uh, Robert, at the end of every show, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I practice what we call the power list. I do it every single day. Okay, explain. Keep going. <laughs> so the, the power list is a list of five crucial activities or tasks that you need to do today to move you closer to your goals. People make lists of to-do thing to-do lists that you know are laundry lists of items. And they include everything. And if you're, they're very demotivating. So what I do is I create a task list of five very important, crucial tasks that I need to do every single day that will get me closer to my goals. If I do those five tasks, I can take the rest of the day off. So if, <laughs> if I wake up at 5 a.m. and I do those five tasks, and they're, they're important, they have to be crucially important tasks. Give me, give me an example. So I can't host my podcast without editing audio or recording an episode. So that would be a crucial task for me. So if I finish that by 10 a.m., I could take the rest of the day off if I need to. And if you do that, it's, that's not going to work if you do it one day here, a couple days here, and then wait. You have to do it every single day. And if you do that every single day, it piles up very quickly and it leads to a lot of success. I love it. It's those small steps forward that you think aren't 
massive leaps and goes back to the keeping up with the Joneses and wanting to have things, instant gratification. It's those small steps. And, and I, I, I do something similar. It's, a, it's obviously there's a to-do list of just like what I call blue time, which is really man, like think of the manufacturing time. And then I've got to build list, which is things I want to build, which is like the black time. And for me, writing stuff down on a piece of paper and a notebook and then crossing it out at the end of the week, I can say, wow, I achieved a lot, you know, and that, that is sort of a, a subconscious victory for me. And, and it seems, seems similar to what you're trying to achieve in terms of your five crucial things for the day, uh, because you can look back at the end of the week and you've got 25 crucial things done, right? So you're moving towards that needle. Yeah, exactly. And I post these lists every single day on my Instagram so that people keep me accountable. I have people respond to my Instagram stories almost every day saying, oh, that's an awesome task to do today. Or, hey, you didn't really have a great day today. You only got two of your five tasks done. Or, you know, people <laughs> keep me accountable and it helps. But to your point, crossing those lists off really helped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Question number two is, who was the most influ- influential person in your career? My dad. Yeah, I would have, would have thought so. He seems like a pretty awesome dude. Um, question number three is, in your business, you would have a influential tool. And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a phone or it could be a piece of software that you cannot use or the business cannot run without you using it every single day. So what is the most influential tool in your business today? ClickUp. ClickUp. What is that? So it's similar to a lot of people have probably heard of Trello or yep. something similar yep. like that. I actually was a very avid premium subscriber of Trello. I really liked it. And I recently switched to a platform called ClickUp. It's like mm. Trello, but in my opinion, 10 times better. And so that's, that's a tool that I rely on a lot. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. What, uh, have you ever heard of Smartsheets? I have. Yeah, I like that as well. I don't know if it's similar to Trello, but different. So um, question number four, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? The biggest failure to date you're only 25, but let's, we'll, we'll give you it. <laughs> yeah. Knock, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had a ton of huge failures. You know, there's things that I look back on. I'm like, man, I wish that didn't happen or I wish I'd done this differently. But as simple as it sounds, before I really understood personal finance, before I got the emotional side of it under wraps, before I understood that I didn't care what other people thought about me. I made the decision to, and I was very young. I was in college. I bought a vehicle that was significantly more expensive than I should have been buying. And it impacted my personal finances for a while, for you know a long time, because it ended up having negative equity. I had to carry that for a few years. And it just ended up being an issue that continued to spiral. Thankfully, today it's under control. But I'd say that was probably my biggest you know, quote unquote failure. Yeah. Yeah. Buying something that you didn't need, living within your means. I think it's been a really underlying theme of today's show. Mate, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere a little bit more. Where do they go? The best place to find me would be on Instagram. That's where I'm the most active. You can find me on Instagram at the Robert Leonard. And also our Facebook group. We have a great community of people that are all like-minded trying to learn and help each other get better. You can join the Facebook group and of course, subscribe to my two podcasts. Awesome. Awesome, man. Well, look, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to, to jump on the show and give us some incredible little gold nuggets of advice. I just want to reflect back what I sort of took away from today's show. I think that the biggest thing is, is obviously on the personal finance side, living within your means and having a bit of a buffer and how that buffer in, can, can um, apply to personal finance. It can also apply to businesses that you want to invest in, making sure that they have a good balance sheet because that's their buffer, right? When you're going out and investing. I also think there's sort of the four things that you were talking about before about uh, consistency 
uh, good valuation, fair valuation, and long-term growth coupled with the um, the good balance sheets is super important for 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 wanting to invest in in the stock market. And having that long-term mindset is really important. And I think the the number one piece of advice that I've taken away from today's show is that piece because it's it's vital how we make money. We're planting seeds. We're essentially farmers at the end of the day. We're planting bloody big oak trees, and they're gonna they're gonna produce some shade in five or ten years' time. Just give it, just give let it let it grow a little bit. So, did did I leave, uh, leave anything out? No, I think you did a great job. Awesome, man. Well, look again. Thank you so much for catching up uh, for jumping on the show. We'll catch up very very soon. Thanks so much for having me, Reed. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Robert. Please do check out his two podcasts. He is an incredible mover and shaker doing some awesome stuff in, in the stock market and investing and helping millennials grow their financial IQ. Um, and I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to jump on this show and listen to the tune into this show, I should say. If you do like this show, please give back by giving it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave. Remember, go give life a crack.